Hey everybody, welcome back to the Macro Trading Floor. This week, instead of my good friend Andrea Steno, with me, I have another friend. His name is Jim Leitner. He's the president and the chief investment officer at Falcon Management. But Jim, before running Falcon, has you know, worked for quite some years, I think 40, Jim, correct me if I'm wrong, in the, in the industry and running money. So he's a guy with plenty of experience and I'm very happy to have him here as a guest. Jim, how are you doing? I'm doing really well. Um... You know, I was a little surprised when you called me so quickly because Andrea Steno, who I love to listen to, is obviously uh, not feeling well today or something happened, but I'm happy to jump in for him. Um, I think the three of us together make a good team of comparing ideas and talking about the world and uh, just looking at macro in general. So what's on your mind? What's on my mind? Well, you're the guest, Jim. So today is one of these good old episodes of the Macro Trading Floor where we interview a macro mind. And you have been interviewed actually by plenty, I think. You also uh, feature in books even, Jim, in one of these episodes of The Market Wizard, I think, or House of Money or some of these books. So I'm honored to actually share the time with you here. Let's start from a pretty broad question, uh, because this year has been quite schizophrenic in markets. We have moved from narrative to narrative, Chinese reopening, soft lending, banking crisis, oh, the economy is accelerating, oh, no, it's decelerating. So where do we stand in global macro, Jim? Ooh, that's a big, wide question. You know, I think really this next 10 years is a macro world of multipolarity. And I think we're going to be seeing many, many of these kind of crazy times where lots of different things are happening. Because... You know, it used to be, I think, that you could focus on the U.S. And it would tell you, okay, this is what's going on. And then everything would just kind of play off the U.S. And then later, you know, you added China to that. And you had like the U.S. and the China, bipolar, what's happening in China? Oh, you know, what's going on with the trade talks? Um, What's happening with inflation between those two countries? What are the central banks doing? But I think really ever since COVID, it's become very clear that the global South is um, reasserting itself in a certain way. I mean, when you look back several hundreds of years, you see that China was a mighty economy and, you know, the Southern Hemisphere had way more economic weight that then over the Industrial Revolution shifted towards the North. And I think, you know, what we're seeing today is a world where many of these countries are becoming idiosyncratic. You know, they, they will do what they think is right for their country. It's not about being part of the Chinese universe or the U.S. universe. Like, you look at India. You know, India is happy to import oil cheaply from Russia. If yeah. Russia wants to sell it to them $20 below where they're selling to other people, be my friend. <laughs> or, you know, when Brazil says, you know, they don't want to sell weapons to the Ukraine um, and they're happy to buy fertilizer from Russia because they need fertilizer for their soybean exports, which, I mean, Brazil is the largest soybean exporter in the world. Um, they're looking out for Brazil. And I think it's a time where we're going to see volatility in all these different idiosyncratic worlds because special things are happening, elections are happening. Inflation is uh, transmitted differently. Look at Eastern Europe. You know, inflation rates way higher than in Western Europe. Why? What is going on exactly? Is it just a measurement factor? Do they have higher food component in CPI? Or is it um, 
that there's actually something different, idiosyncratically different. And I think idiosyncratically, we do see lots and lots of interesting occurrences happening around the world now. And I think it makes macro much more exciting, much more interesting. And also, it makes it um, more possible to thematically have a diversified portfolio. You know, where in the past, I think we often used to have to think about, well, you know, what's happening with U.S. interest rates? Are they going up? Are they going down? Clearly, in the U.S., you know, we just now had huge 500 basis point rise in rates since December of 20, well, we now 21. Yeah. <laughs> you know, did that affect the rest of the world? Of course it did. But there was also a massive change, in, you know. Yet, even during this period of time, we saw Brazil acting before the U.S., you know, they started raising rates in uh, March of 2021, nine months before the Americans did. They were at two percent. They went to thirteen and three quarters percent. Now, when you talk about aggressive tightening, that is aggressive, you know. And when you now look at the world today, uh, two years later, after they've raised rates for two years, clearly their economy has slowed down, but also. Effectively, inflation has dropped. You know, inflation peaked at about 10, 10.5%. It's down to 5 Interest rates are still at 13 and 3 quarters for a variety of reasons, because the fiscal policy plan is not that clear, etc. You know, there's some political risk. We have a new president. How is that going to play out, etc.? Um, so we have some of the highest real rates in the world. I mean, like 6 and 3 quarters to 7%. Real rates in a country where the liquidity is absolutely adequate for you to take currency risk, fixed income risk, um, equity risk. And, you know, I think um, it's an exciting time. I love talking to you about the world now because we could talk about, you could pick any country and we could have a discussion for 10, 15 minutes to see what's special about that country and how might it be different from the U.S. or how might... You know, how might U.S. markets react without really impacting those markets? Yeah. And we can see so it in Japan. In Japan, too, right? We just see it. What crazy moves we've had there on the Nikkei in the last week while, you know, risk in, in other parts of the world is going up and down. This, this has been like a one-way street. Anyway, yeah. there you are. So that makes me think, because I was looking into how investors have approached diversifying their risk over the last 20 to 30 years, and obviously the 60-40 portfolio has been the benchmark for that, right? I mean, people held 60% of stocks, 40% in bonds, and they felt like the portfolio was diversified. And I had then a look back at, I think, uh, something like 1880s. I went back more than a century and had a look at what the 60-40 portfolio did in different macro regimes, because people think that the regime we had over the last 10 years necessarily will repeat itself for the next 10 years. And look, the 60-40 portfolio, Jim, did very well, both in terms of returns and in terms of analyzed volatility and returns adjust for risk in many of these decades, but it did pretty poorly in a lot of these decades too, where real returns were negative or slightly positive in the face of an analyzed volatility of about 14%. But what really struck me the most was, what about drawdowns? I mean, the 60-40 portfolio took drawdowns of like 30, 40, 70% even in the 30s. So it, not, it doesn't always work as a truly diversified portfolio, especially when things become 
more about the rest of the world than about the U.S., more about inflationary pressures, more about correlations converging to one when you don't want them to converge to one. So the question I have for you is, if you look at the next decade, where do you think are the pain points in people's portfolio? And how do you go in identifying what are the assets that might actually protect portfolios against events that haven't happened in the last 10 years, which doesn't necessarily mean it won't happen in the next 10 years? I think it's a really hard question. You know, if you think about global portfolios, every country seems to have a home bias. I mean, the investors in the U.S. have a home bias in the U.S. Investors in Europe have a home bias in Europe. So clearly we need to be a little bit more specific about it. So let's say an American investor. Yeah. What, what, should, what should they do? Well, I think for the next 10 years, you know, one thing is that from the fixed income side of the portfolio, at least now you're earning a reasonable return <laughs> compared to the 10 years previously. Take, take 2010 through 2020, bond yields ended up at very, very low levels. And if you're in a 60-40 portfolio, that 40 isn't paying you very much. So yeah. forward looking for 10 years, your coupon income is going to be relatively low. Um, so I think that, um, again, like we said earlier, I think you need to start expanding your scope and pushing back on the home bias, because in the home bias, there are only so many things you can do. <laughs> I mean, you can, you know, you can be in equities, you can be in real estate, you can be in, uh, in fixed income. Yes. What does it mean to be an alternative? PE, is it really an alternative? The correlation to the U.S. equity market and the U.S. PE market is probably stronger than people think. It's hard to measure exactly given that there is no index to measure the PE performance that precisely on a daily basis as we can in the U.S. Uh, S&P market. Um, so I think it brings me back to this idea of idiosyncratic bets that you need to overlay on your portfolio in order to reduce the overall volatility and to bring in a much more uh, intelligent way of diversification. So I think it's driven thematically more than just by asset category. So instead of saying, okay, I'm, I have a portfolio of equities and bonds, now I'm going to expand that to international markets. I'm going to have international equities too and international bonds. Okay, that does something. But I think besides that, there are going to be themes. And those themes, I think, are going to be important. Um, you know, there might be themes like um, the um, idea that some of these idiosyncratic country bets are driven by certain commodities. So let's say Chile. Chile is the largest exporter of copper in the world. Everybody's talking about electrification, and we have climate change as an issue, and we want to get away from uh, carbon-based fuels, etc. Exactly how that will happen, I don't know. But over 10 years, there's probably some move in that direction. Is that going to make Chile a more interesting bet? because of their copper exports, not because they're Chile and they're a different country. Yes, you know, if you have a view on what copper is going to do over 10 years and you think that there's a supply scarcity in the long term, 
that, you know, the kind of uh, copper deposits that you're finding easily today don't have the same grade, and it's much more difficult to mine, so therefore countries like Chile in copper are going to have an advantage. Well, that means you're really thinking a lot more about Chile country allocation, and then within that, you're not, then you can decide. Is it the currency that's going to do well? Is it uh, the local equity market? And then you also have to start worrying much, much more about the politics of these countries. So last about two weeks ago, three weeks ago, we had a statement from the uh, Chilean president uh, about a lithium nationalization. Basically, you know, they're also a very large producer of lithium which we also need in this electrification world for the battery um, components, etc. And, you know, Borch came out with a statement that um, he is considering a, a type of nationalization of the lithium industry. And we saw immediately lithium stocks around the world getting hit. Um, was it a positive? Was it negative? Initially, the Chilean peso was hit quite quickly, but then people start focusing on the politics and they realize that actually the parliament has an overweight of conservative parties in it. And uh, there was an election for a new constitutional convention, which again had more conservatives winning spaces in this election than liberal left of center politicians. And the moment that happened, everybody started saying, well, in that case, you know, all this talk about nationalization and so on, it's never really going to pass through parliament. And two weeks later, the Chilean peso is looking strong as a bull moose again, even in a world where the dollar seems to be going up right now, short term, long term, but... Uh, you know, the, with the, what's been happening in the U.S. interest rate market um, and the Fed repricing, you know, when they did May and now it looks like people are pricing in a 30% chance that they might go again in June. And then this morning there was a statement by our favorite uh, Wall Street Journal uh, <laughs> journalist who seems to be the spokesperson for the Fed when they don't want to say something themselves, that how close the decision is for June. And of course, what happens? The dollar starts going up immediately. But against Chile, very, very little. It moved like one, one tick this yeah. morning. So basically, Jim, you are telling people that they need to broaden their horizon, that in the next 10 years, it might not necessarily be only about the U.S., it might mm -hmm. be about finding idiosyncratic stories everywhere in the world that can provide these positive returns that are not necessarily correlated to where U.S. macro is sitting at that point. I mean, maybe the U.S. dollar is rallying, but at the same time, it might be that in Chile or in Brazil or in some other emerging market out there, Eastern Europe, things are looking particularly well, and that's where your source of return is likely to be. And for the last 10 years, emerging market, commodities, anything related to that kind of uh, risk factor has really not worked very much. So what makes me think here is, since we're talking about commodities, is that really the angle in people's portfolio that has not worked for the last 10 to 20 years? And that's why people are massively underweight, not only the commodities, but every market that is related yeah, to that? 
Yes, definitely. I mean, I was going to say that. I think that for 12 years, EM has underperformed. Um, commodities have underperformed. And not only in investors' portfolios, but also in actual cash investment projects. Like how much money are oil companies spending on new exploration? Less and less. You know, you see drilling going down, etc. Instead, um, energy companies are returning capital to their shareholders, right? And what that means is that if there is an sh- upside shock to demand, the inelasticity of prices is going to be such that prices are going to jump much more than people expect, and your commodity producers will have excess profits. I think over the next 10 years, it's definitely a place where we are going to find opportunities. And it's both on the countryside and on the individual commodity side. So you see it, oil being something very clear. You know, we want to decarbonize the world. But when I look around the streets, there are many, many more internal combustion cars than electric cars still. And they're going to need fuel to keep driving. And, you know, I have an old, old Suburban, and it still drives after 110,000 miles, and it'll probably drive for another 100,000 miles slowly and carefully. And, you know, I think the demand for oil isn't just suddenly going to disappear and get converted into electricity demand. Um, so I think there are actually interesting opportunities in those markets where people have underinvested both in the actual capex but also in their investment portfolios. I think we saw that also last year in the way energy equities performed. And we've had a lot of um, interesting things happen where we had a lot of volatility in the last year, but actually prices have not gone up very much in terms of commodities. Yeah, so if you look at copper, it really hasn't gone up very much. It's slightly higher than it was, but it's, you know, as a matter of fact, it's been quite weak in the last five, six months. Um, so I'm, I'm, I'm thinking here, Jim, let's try to make this a bit more concrete with some war stories from your end. I mean, you have invested in global markets for a lot of decades, taking risks in places where people are not necessarily very familiar with. Remember reading a chapter about you buying, let me see if I can remember this right, a brewery in Ghana. This is what I remember. Is that correct? That is correct. (laughs) Incredible. So let's talk about that as an example, just to show people what do you, Jim Leitner, look for when considering an asymmetric risk-reward opportunity in markets in general? How do you think about a theme? Where do you find it? Where do you find information? How do you think about setting up a trade? Do you use option? Do you use cash products? How do you think about all of this? Ooh, that's a hard question. But (laughs) I think the, the beginning is really how do you find ideas, right? So I always say that there are um, different different um, verticals for me. One of them um, is curation. I mean, having you as a friend helps me curate the world. By myself, I cannot follow 50, 60 countries, 
look at equity marks, look at volatility, look at the currency, look at what's happening in the polity. It's too much. However, if you have a reasonable way of curating the world, and partially you can do that with Substack, and you can subscribe to friends like you or um, Kevin in Toronto or Steno or, you know, people who are doing interesting work themselves, that already narrows the universe of what you can look at yourself, number one. Number two, I always have this, um, what I call the Monty Hall paradox uh, mm -hmm. approach, which is you should listen to the game masters in the world. You should listen to um, the... Um, people who are running the central banks, who are the treasury secretaries. I don't believe that they ever lie to you on purpose. They might be wrong. They have incorrect forecasts. Um, they make mistakes. But I don't think that they are ever coming out and making statements to trick you. <laughs> you know, they are trying hard to get you as an investor to be supportive of their policies so that you move your portfolio in a direction that helps them with their objectives. I think one thing that's happened in the last 10 years to me is that instead of having to listen to only Yellen or Powell, you know, the U.S. ones, now you have to listen to Glapinski in Poland, Seddon in, the, in Sweden. You have to listen to many, many more people. So that's a lot more time-consuming, but it's part of running an interesting macro approach. And then I think, you know, looking back to me is science, looking forward is an art. But like on your, um, uh, the macro compass, you now have a new tool, um, which I would call something like the, the correlation explorer or the, the <laughs> you know, correlation is something that's super important in the world. Because intuitively, that is how we find trades. We kind of look at the world and we say, oh, my God, like oil prices up. Euro Norway should be going down. Mm -hmm. Oh, but it's not going down. Why not? You know, then it raises a question. And your new tool, for example, um, I was looking at it two days ago on a three-month look-back way of looking at it. The top 11 changes in correlation had to do with the Polish currency. Yeah. Was Poland against copper, Poland against the euro, Poland against, you name it, 11 different things. So obviously it wasn't the 11 different things that were moving strangely. It was Poland that was moving strangely. Yeah. <laughs> and that is part of the idea of how do you discover things scientifically? Well, you look back and you look at correlation and you know, what kind of mean reversion you might expect or not, etc. You look back at something that has worked in macro on and off for the last 30, 40, 50 years, carry. So in the last three months, plain vanilla carry has made 10%. If you just were long the five highest yielding currencies and short the five lowest yielding currencies, call that classic carry. You made 10%. Well, you should keep that in mind, you know, because that gives you a signal. What, which ones are those currencies that are the five 
high yielders that seem to be doing well right now and which ones are the ones that are the five low yielders and which currencies are moving in and out of those baskets? What are new ones that are coming in? Which ones are moving out? So when you put all that together, it gives you ideas. I like Poland now. So we, we can talk about this Polish idea because it showed up very clearly. So that's the kind of science of looking back. You look at correlations, you look at carry, you look at momentum. It gives you mathematical ideas that trigger you to think about the future, which is an art. Because the future we don't know yet. It's yeah. still indeterminate. So if you look at Poland and it has outperformed, so on all those metrics on your website, it had done better than what you would expect given these other 11 assets against which you were measuring correlation. You ask yourself, well, why? What's going on? So you start doing more research about Poland. <laughs> you say, well, I best learn more about it. I best call a professor at Columbia and find out what they're thinking about uh, Polish politics. And then they introduce you to somebody who runs the European Social Survey in Poland, and you can discuss with them what they're thinking and what is happening. What am I missing here? So this is what uh, the Polish one is. Very simple. Um, we have an election coming in about six months. The current government, called the PI, run by something called the PIS, is rather nationalistic and gives the impression of being anti-European. There is a whole problem with the rule of law indicators where the European... Uh, Union is not happy with the way the Polish government has influenced the judiciary, and they're holding back 30 billion plus euros of COVID funds that were allocated, part of grants, part of loans. Um, and that's, that's kind of a negative, which is one of the reasons why, for example, Poland has underperformed versus Czech over the last year. You know, Czech doesn't seem to have the same kind of negative um, relationship with the EU. So then you look at this election coming up in six months. And the opposition is run by a guy named Tusk, who was president of the European Commission, very well regarded in Europe. Imagine if the opposition won the election and he became president, he, he became prime minister because of the prime ministerial system. So the relationship with Europe would switch on a dime. I think the rule of law indicator problems would go away, the relationship with Brussels would improve, the relationship with Germany would improve. Now, I'm not a big believer in polls. Of course, I follow polls. And the polls are that the two are running very close together, within the margin of error. The PIS is slightly ahead of the opposition, but not by enough to form its own government. They're going to have to form a coalition. Uh, the opposition is running 2 or 3% below the PIS, but again, they have to form a coalition. It's very easy to say this is a 50-50 bet, that if Tusk wins, you have a really massive upside in the Polish Slotti. If he doesn't win, not much change. <laughs> we know what we have. So... From that perspective, from the politics, I immediately say to myself, well, I ought to think about I should belong some Poland because if I think the upside is large, a Euro-Poland could drop a lot, whereas the downside, is Euro-Poland going to fall apart if the PIS wins again? 
Probably not. It might weaken a little bit, but not such a big deal. Then two weeks ago, guess what happened? Mr. Glapinski, who is the president of the Polish National Bank, comes out and says, a stronger zloty would be good for us because it's anti-inflationary. So now you suddenly have both sides of the, the opposition would be a positive. The government is saying this is, having a stronger currency wouldn't be a bad thing. Inflation in Poland is running relatively high. You have negative real rates. The Polish Central Bank does not want to raise interest rates any further. It's already difficult. They're going into an election. He is a PIS-appointed president to the, to the bank. A stronger currency would be anti-inflationary in a way that kind of is not as obvious, that you didn't have to raise rates, you can't get blamed if, if it slows down the, the economy. So now suddenly you're sitting there and you say, oh, now, now it makes the bet even more interesting. So then it gets, comes to implementation, right? Yeah. You can take any bet and using options, turn it into a bet that has convexity. Convexity basically in this more not mathematical sense means you have more upside than downside. <laughs> That's a really simple explanation for the way we use this word in general parlance. So if you buy um, a stock, a stock often has convexity, right? It can only go to zero, but it could go up multiple times. However, your time frame is long and indeterminate, etc. Here we have something very clear. The election is going to happen in the fall. No date has been announced. But by nine months from now, we will have had an election. Okay, perfect. We know that. Now, what does it take to be right? Well, it takes you getting the direction correct. Is, are things going up or down? And number two, it takes a time frame. The thing with the stock, when you say, well, you know, like, oh, there's some time, it will be higher. It, you don't have a time frame. Eventually, you will be right, maybe, but, you know, it's always going to be hard for you to prove that you actually had an idea. In this case, we know the election is going to happen within the fall. So let's assume sometime, September, October, November. Nine months from now, you will know the result. So let's look at options for nine months. We have a view that the euro against the Poland will go lower or that the Polish stock market will do well for a variety of reasons. And then we can say to ourselves, okay, if you did an option at the money forward, so at the price of where the Polish Zloty trades today for nine months from now, it's a 50-50 chance that it'll be higher or lower, right? Because the market makers don't care <clears throat> the way the, <clears throat> excuse me, the delta hedging works when somebody sells you an option, they are indifferent to what actually happens over time. It's a very important concept to realize because people sometimes ask me, well, why do people sell you an option when you tend to make money on options? They shouldn't sell it to you. But of course they should <laughs> because they are indifferent to what actually happens. Their view is, I have a certain volatility that I've sold to Falcon, and now I'm going to delta hedge this and gamma hedge it and use it 
to create my portfolio as an options market maker, and maybe somebody will sell me back a different option that gives me some offset, etc. So if it's a 50-50 bet, and I have a time frame, and I believe that um, I have the direction right, well, then the question is, how, how certain do I think that it's not 50-50? Well, in this case, maybe I don't really know how certain I feel that's not going to be 50-50. However, I don't have to buy the option at the money forward. I can buy a cheaper option. So let's say I'm willing to say, you know, I think the price will be about lower than where today's Euro Poland is. So the forward is already built in there. So now I'm paying, let's say, 25% of the payout of the option. And if it happens, I make 100%. So now I have a 4 to 1 payout on a 50-50 bet. And that is how you create convexity. We can do that in a retail sense by using call option spreads or put option spreads on the Polish stock market. Like in America, there is a ETF called EPOL for the Polish stock market. Obviously, if the currency does well, that will be reflected in the price of the ETF. Um, will it be dominated by the equity component? Probably yes. But using options, you can always create asymmetric payoffs. And then the only question is, how do you size that correctly in your portfolio? How certain are you that this is going to happen? And when I look back at my history over the last four or five years, I started keeping track of ideas that I felt strongly about. And on average, they were right 75% of the time, let's say. That's good, but I also want to look back and say, did, was the outcome asymmetric? When I was wrong, how much did I lose? So let's assume your option premium goes to zero because you put up some options premium, it goes to zero, you lose 100%. On the upside, let's look back. I made about 150%. So that's a good bet. You make 150%, 75% of the time. On average, you're going to compound at beautiful rates. But even if it were 50-50, if you are making 150% and losing 100%, there is a way to calculate what the correct amount is that you should do. And that's called the Kelly bet. You know, Mr. Kelly identified these uh, parameters that he used playing card games, blackjack. How much should he bet? And of course, in those type of situations, the outcomes and the probabilities are much clearer. Like, you know, there's so many cards, there's so many red cards, so many black cards, you know, so many face cards, etc. But in our world, we're never that certain. And we can't just look at history and say, well, I've been right 75% of the time. Let's assume you just say, I'm right 50% of the time, but you make 150% and you lose 100%. Then the correct amount to bet is 16% of what you're willing to lose. Okay, so then you can say, well, I also have other bets in my portfolio. I also have Chile. I also have... Brazil, I also have some views on the U.S. fixed income market. So if you stick with one-tenth of Kelly, it gives you an idea of the type of bet that you should be putting on that will help you create a portfolio. And over time, whether it's, it's 
50-50 successful or even better should give you positive returns. And that should be accretive to the overall beta that you want to be earning also. Jim, I am here listening to a full comprehensive answer on where do you get ideas from? What do you watch in markets? In this case, we talked about breaking correlations. Then you went into how do you try to create asymmetric payoffs? And finally, how do you size positions within these instruments, right? So I think this segment you did, I think you talked for 10, 12 minutes. It's the, the core, the kernel of what the macro trading floor wants to be. It was a really good explanation on I would say across the board, how do you think of the world? How do you think of macro? Where do you get the idea from? How do you size it up? Which instrument do you look at? How do you create a symmetry? So I just wanted to thank you. That's why I saw you. Maybe you had finished your long thought and I just wanted to say, wow, that was really, really good. <laughs> Love talking to you. I mean, we've known each other now for, I think you were still at ING Bank when we started talking yeah. to each other. Yeah. Through that. Through that. We've it's been a couple great of years. Friend. It's Jim, wonderful. Jim, let me ask you something, and actually also for, uh, for the audience, because you said that we met when I was at ING, my previous role. I was putting out some thoughts, I think, on LinkedIn back then, and then uh, you had seen something interesting. You sent me a message. So you're a very casual guy, despite being somebody who was very successful with a long experience in markets, which makes me want to ask you, where can people reach out to you? Because you're really open to having a conversation with interesting people, being students, being professionals. So let me ask you, if people want to reach out to you, is there an easy way for them? Yes, there are two ways. One is just connect to me on LinkedIn and send me a message and I will accept you and we can chat. Uh, or send me an email, jleitner at falconmgt.com and I will respond. I'm a really big believer in randomness in life. We should intentionally try to introduce some randomness in our life. And over the last four or five years where I've tried to do that, this has really been an upside to my happiness. I've met such interesting people, high school students who reached out, college students, professionals, and, you know, as we talked earlier about this idea of, um, coral, um, of um, thinking about friends and a network around the world, it's been amazing to just add people who send you an idea that they have developed and they want some feedback on it. So I'm happy to do that. I always respond. If I don't respond, it must mean I've missed the message and just ping me again. Do not be, uh, do not be shy about it. Um, and I'm happy to share my time and uh, my interest with anybody who wants to chit-chat and wants to be connected. So you heard it all, guys. Thanks for being here, Jim. Appreciate it. You take care. Thank you.